Pushkin. There's a place in our world where the known things go. A corridor of the mind, stocked with evidence, packed with proof. I've got this one box in here with stuff from my childhood. Old report cards, softball team photographs, Girl Scout badges. And this, Russia in Review, a magazine I made out of magic markers and construction paper in 1979 when I was 12 in seventh grade for social studies. It's got an article on the space race, a little history that starts with Sputnik. There's a story about samovars, a little biography. Joseph Stalin, a Russian dictator, was a man who instilled terror in people. His early life may have been the cause of this. Plus, fake ads. Pepsi Koska, the communistic cola. I made up one article called On Tour in Moscow, where I meet people on the street and I say things like, Hello, miss. We're American reporters. Would you mind a short interview? I loved imagining myself as a foreign correspondent. All expenses were paid. I was all packed and ready for my trip to Russia. What I didn't know when I was 12 was at the same time as I was imagining flying to Moscow to interview Russians about communism, a guy named Valentin Zorin, the Walter Cronkite of the Soviet Union, was flying to the United States from Moscow to interview Americans about capitalism for Soviet television. So step back across the passage of time to follow in the footsteps of a Soviet reporter, a historian of sorts. Valentin Zorin, known as the Walter Cronkite of the Soviet Union, is filming a documentary on the United States. In 1978, Valentin Zorin went to Southern California. He went to Disneyland. A local public TV station sent a reporter out to Anaheim to cover his visit. The sinister gentleman in the navy blue jacket might have bought his way into Disneyland, as thousands of Russians have, but Valentin Zorin wanted to bring a film crew. The Soviet newsmen had been forbidden to film Universal Studios and the Hollywood sign, and he said the influence of right-wing conservative forces in Los Angeles were beginning to hedge him in. Zorin had been complaining about conservatives who'd been decrying his visit, but at Disneyland, Zorin said he didn't want to talk politics. Mr. Zorin, uh, are you still uh, sensing the right-wing and conservative influences that you spoke of a day or two ago? I think that Disneyland is uh, not a good place for such discussions. Welcome to The Last Archive, the show about how we know what we know and why it seems lately as if we don't know anything at all. I'm Jill Lepore. This season, I'm trying to trace the history of doubt I've been arguing that the rise and spread of new kinds of doubt over the course of the 20th century was accelerated by changing technologies of communication, beginning with the radio, by the increasing sophistication and complexity of scientific research, and most of all, by the lies told in wartime. The First World War, the Second World War, and the Cold War. This episode, I wanted to think about something a little different. Not lies, exactly, but mutual misunderstanding, misperception, and misinformation. This episode, Sowing Doubt as Foreign Policy. Look, right at the top here, let me put a few cards on the table. 
Here's a really good reason to look at Soviet propaganda. It's a lot like Trump propaganda. The stuff Donald Trump said, the whole of his campaign, the whole of his administration, the whole of his post-presidency. In Soviet propaganda, as in Trump's America, nothing is what it seems, all the news is fake, and there are conspiracies everywhere. This has been happening for a long time. In 2016, right after the U.S. election, a certain sort of Russian misinformation operation made headlines and brought reporters to a nondescript building in St. Petersburg. What's allegedly happening here? The manufacture of fake news. This is a so-called troll factory. Troll factories are only the latest weapons in a very, very old propaganda war. But that's why I want to take a close look at the ideological weapons Valentin Zorin helped build and the hazardous waste they left behind. But I've got to confess, I had never heard of him until Julia Barton, the Last Archive's brilliant editor, told me about him. I'm just a big USSR nerd, and I was doing a bunch of research, and as one does, I ran across some of Zorin's stuff while doing that, and it just fell into this rabbit hole of Zorin. Julia found a bunch of Zorin's documentaries on RuTube, that's Russian YouTube, and watched his work over and over. It's so well made, and Mm -hmm. a lot of Soviet TV is not that watchable, and this is very different. Julia showed me one of his films, a little number called America, Autumn 1971. When this film opens, Zorin is sitting on a rock in the woods. He's holding a small book in his hands, maybe a book of poetry. He's looking directly into the camera. Late fall. What's on the mind of Americans as they find themselves near the end of the year 1971? What's on the minds of Americans? We will try to answer this question by visiting bureaucrats in D.C., on the streets of New York, Like, the footage is just so fun. It has this kind Mm -hmm. of mix of, you know, James Bond and David Attenborough, in which we are the monkeys. You know what I mean? Yep. Not a normal position for Americans to feel themselves in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I love that about it, that there's also kind of, I was thinking about, um, you know, 1968 and Planet of the Apes and sort of like looking mm-hmm. on a kind of fallen version of what America is through the eyes of some different people. Yeah. Julia got interested in Russia as a kid at the same age as I did. In eighth grade, I did a paper about the Russians and how the Russians <laughs> were people. And I was just like, I get it now. I understand mm-hmm. this country that we're not supposed to understand, you know. It's weird this thing Julie and I share, Americans our age share, as if it's a generational marker. But unlike me, Julia got hooked, studied Russian, traveled to the Soviet Union. And then later, when she was older, she got obsessed with Zorin, the Americanist who studied us. Valentin Zorin was born in 1925, joined the Communist Party when he was a student in Moscow. He got the best education, but mixed in with math and history was a steady diet of Soviet conspiracy propaganda. Like in 1945, when after FDR died, one of Zorin's professors claimed to prove beyond a doubt that Roosevelt had been poisoned on orders of Harry S. Truman. Okay, so that's bonkers, but it tells you about the education Zorin got 
and it says a lot that he believed this, apparently all his life. In Zoran's America, nothing was what it seemed. All the news was fake, and there were conspiracies everywhere. In the 1950s, Zoran trained to become a diplomat, but his mother was Jewish, and the Soviets didn't trust Jews to serve as diplomats. So instead, he became a radio commentator and continued his studies, earning a doctorate in history. Dr. Zorin, Professor Zorin. In 1963, a few days after Lee Harvey Oswald shot and killed John F. Kennedy, Zorin says he made his way to Dallas to investigate. He began a quest to unmask America. He worked as a reporter, a documentary filmmaker, and a television news commentator. For years, he hosted a show that was the Russian version of Meet the Press. He was everywhere. He loved this joke. I turned on the radio, there was Zorin. Turned on the TV, also Zorin. I needed to turn on the iron, but thought better of it. I don't really get that joke, but I still love it. Point is, he really was everywhere. He was the Soviet Union's best-known Americanist and quite a serious journalist. His take on the world was so persuasive Mm -hmm. that it became the take on America. And he also got to go to places that a lot Mm -hmm. of Americanists in the Soviet Union never even got to go to America. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then he's also, you know, this kind of sexy debonair guy with a cigarette holder and his coiffed hair and cool Cronkite glasses. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, he's very alluring. And so like the combination of like the physically alluring sort of intellectual, which is an unusual, <laughs> let me just say, it's an unusual mix. Yeah, and he's uh, funny. He's, he's funny. funny, yeah, but then he's also reductive, right, mm-hmm. But which is also appealing, right? We will sit in the powerful Senate chambers and sit with the unemployed. We'll see things through the eyes of Wall Street traders and the eyes of the protesters against war and poverty. That's America. Fall of 1971. There's a rule about propaganda. It's got to have some basis in fact. The whole point of Soviet anti-American propaganda at just this moment was to unmask the myth of American greatness, as the historian Dina Feinberg has pointed out. Zorin made most of his documentaries about America during detente, a warming period in U.S.-Soviet relations. During detente, Americans were trying to understand Soviets, and Soviets were trying to understand Americans, on the theory that mutual understanding was the only way the Cold War could end. There were all sorts of Russianists in the United States and all sorts of Americanists in the Soviet Union, everyone calling for understanding, including American President Jimmy Carter. Each of us has only one nation. We both share the same world. Believing that Americans and Soviets share the same world, that was detente. Zorin, like all Soviet journalists, followed directives from the state. His film, America, Autumn 1971, came out at the very beginning of detente, so it's a softer take on the United States. But if you go back just one year to 1970, just before detente, you see a very different Zorin, more adversarial, more die-capitalist pigs, I wanted to understand this transition better. The problem is, I don't speak a word of Russian. So I called up my Harvard colleague, Serhi Plohi, a professor of Ukrainian history. He's the author of a terrific new book, Nuclear Folly, A History of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Serhi and I, we'd taught history classes together, but I'd actually never known much about his own history. He was born in Russia, 
and grew up in Ukraine. I was fascinated to see that you were born in the year of Sputnik. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am a Sputnik generation, yes. You're a, a Sputnik poster generation. child, yeah. Um, so, and you said you, you grew up watching Zorin as a kid? Uh, well, uh, as a teenager, certainly. Uh, my my father was watching him, and actually I, I watched him as well. And again, that was the window on them, on them America, on, on the United States. For a generation of Soviets, Zorin's films were pretty much their only window on the United States. Sergei, born in 1957, had watched Zorin on TV as a teenager, but he'd not seen any of those films since. So we watched them together, starting with an early series called Masters Without Masks. It was a lot more over the top than Sergei remembered. It begins with a pretty hair-raising video montage of scenes from all over the U.S. set over blaring James Bond music. Americans as decadent capitalists, with really nice cars and exciting clothes. Yeah, I said, it, it, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Oh, my gosh. So it's 1970. He's just starting, and it's just the deepest Cold War and, and the, 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 the most... I, I don't know. I, I almost don't believe my eyes. <laughs> so, <it's> so, <laughs> what we're looking at is such an like a massively captivating assembly of stereotypes. Like, it's just like sex and money, and it's a mess. They're crazy over there. <laughs> Was, yes, know, yes, just, yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, and of course, it runs on money. It's controlled by money. And it's, it's, it's awful. It's decadent. Sarah, though, explained to me that the Zorin exposés look one way, but people in the Soviet Union saw them differently. You go for something that actually you want to see. And, okay, and there are people dancing, right? Okay, this is interesting. This is cool. Okay, and, and there is casino. Well, we don't have casinos in the Soviet Union. It would be interesting to see what those casinos are. You know, like it's an indictment of this excess, but it's also like, ooh. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. I, I would like to see that. That Sergei and I both ended up being historians kind of knocks me out the parallelism, and also the inversion. Teenage Sergei in Ukraine watching Zorin and becoming fascinated by the United States. Me in the United States making my magazine about Russia. I had magic markers. The USSR had television. Ask Julia Barton how Soviet TV worked. Keep in mind, the Soviet Union is the biggest uh, country in the world by far. It has 11 time zones. And like, what can link all those people together? It's television. Mm. So everything that gets made, something special like this, is broadcast to millions of people over and over and over again. And the thing that Soviets are the most curious about and really want to see is news from abroad, much more so than Americans ever have been. Americans and Soviets, we were looking at one another, peering through holes in the Iron Curtain. Zorin was looking through that curtain, too. But he wasn't exactly looking for the truth about the United States. Détente was a nice idea, but there was still a war on. And even though his films appeared softer now, Zorin was looking for evidence of America's corruption, its inner evil, evidence of its darkest secrets.
Cold War Soviet propagandists wanted to unmask America. One way they did that was to focus on the brutality of Jim Crow. That led to an American response. In 1952, the U.S. Attorney General argued for an end to segregation on the ground that it had crippled American foreign policy. He wrote, Racial discrimination furnishes grist for the communist propaganda mills, and it raises doubts, even among friendly nations, as to the intensity of our devotion to the democratic faith. Exposing American hypocrisy worked really well for Soviets, depicting the U.S. as the land of the free, but really the home of the oppressed. But there's also, you know, the belief that um, communism is at this vanguard of social change. And so they're looking for signs that, um, that this vanguard is advancing in places like the United States. It's about... Um, you know, capitalism falling apart, falling on its own sword. In American autumn, Zorin goes to an office building to visit the National Socialist White People's Party, American neo-Nazis. Zorin's smoking a cigarette, he's super casual, he rings the doorbell, and then amazingly, these Nazis let the Soviet film crew inside. Captain, what are the main aims of your party? The main aims of our party uh, can be summed up in two words, white power. Uh, we believe that... Zorn's argument in this film is that there's a direct connection between neo-Nazis and the U.S. government. A direct connection between neo-Nazis and the two major American political parties. Soren's documentary takes us from the offices of the White People's Party to a rally for George Wallace, the segregationist one-time governor of Alabama, who ran for president in 1968 and again in 1972. I had my friend Sarah walk me through this part of the film. Okay, so basically, he goes, he interviews this white supremacist, and then the, uh, he says that in Washington uh, they told us, okay, how many of those crazies are out there? And he says, well, there is a lot of them. Wallace is one of their leaders and he got 10 million votes at the last uh, elections. So the, the connection between, between white supremacists and mainstream American politics. After going to the George Wallace rally, He's off to Alabama's cotton fields and shanties with poor black families. Zorin says it's one of the centers of American racism. Noticing a cross burning, footage of a cross burning in the Klan. He was very proud of taking interview from, from uh, I don't know, either the, the leader or one of the leaders of Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, I think it's Robert Shelton. Okay, right. Because he said that that footage was actually bought by by a lot of TV companies all over the world, and he, he was the one who got it. The footage was such a scoop that Zoran sold it to foreign broadcasters to get it out in front of even more viewers. In this incredible scene, Zoran sits down with an imperial wizard of the KKK, in a little fancy parlor with a framed picture of Hitler on the wall behind them. You don't often get to meet a grand wizard, Zorin says in voiceover. And yet here we are talking with Mr. Shelton. Can you tell me, can you tell me about... Can you tell me about... 
Основная цель организации – пропаганда и поддержка христианства и превосходство белой расы. But actually, Zorin wasn't all that interested in social issues or in how politics worked in the United States. He was interested in stories that reduced power struggles to moral struggles, struggles between good and evil. For his biggest story, Zorin needed a different supervillain. Not a Klansman, but a capitalist. A capitalist who, Zorin would claim, had conspired to kill Kennedy. Valentin Zorin one of their respected, as far as the Soviet goes, mouthpieces of the Kremlin, is trying to counter charges on Moscow radio that President Kennedy was a victim of a leftist fanatic. That's CBS newsman Walter Cronkite, after the Kennedy assassination. Cronkite's reporting on Valentin Zorin's claim that Kennedy could not have been killed in Dallas by Lee Harvey Oswald, acting alone, or, God forbid, on orders from Moscow. He has said, those who know how the security of President Kennedy is organized know that it is not possible for a fanatic to commit such an assassination, Valentin Zorin says. And this terribly inflammatory statement by one of the kingpins of Soviet propaganda in Moscow, he went on to say, quote, it is not accidental that it took place in the southern states, which are well known as a stronghold of racist and other fascist scum. Lee Harvey Oswald looked to be a leftist fanatic. He'd taught himself Russian and in 1959 had traveled to the Soviet Union. But Zorin claimed that Kennedy had been killed not by a lone leftist, but by a conservative conspiracy, a capitalist conspiracy. We repeat, in case anybody could mistake the import of these words, that this is Soviet propaganda broadcast by Moscow radio commentator Valentin Zorin. This was Soviet propaganda, sure. But of course, a whole lot of Americans also suspected that Oswald hadn't acted alone. Even after the government published its official report, American conspiracy theorists poured over the evidence, especially footage of the assassination. At the same time, agencies like the KGB only added fuel to that fire. Zorin meant to go further than spreading rumors. He would conduct an investigation. He went to search for the answers to Kennedy's assassination in the place where it happened, Dallas, Texas. And there, Zorin got obsessed with a Texas oil tycoon named H.L. Hunt. Zorin talks a lot about Hunt in a film called The Puzzles of Dallas. H.L. Hunt's mansion fronts a lake in Dallas. And as it turns out, our editor, Julia Barton, grew up just a few blocks away in the less glamorous back end of the neighborhood. Julia and I watched The Puzzles of Dallas together. I was a kid there, and a lot of the shots are like kid angle shots, like they're in the back of a car that's just like mm -hmm. endlessly driving. They even mm -hmm. drive past the freeway exit that we always got off at on I-30, you know, to go home. <laughs> so it was like when I saw that sign, I was like, that's my exit, you know, like get off, go to my mm -hmm. house. Julie didn't know about H.L. Hunt when she was a kid, but later on, she too got fascinated. You know, Hunt was a gambler. He won his oil rights through through a poker game. <laughs> he was also truly, made James Bond. I'm yes, sorry, I, I mean, have to he keep was coming back to Ian Fleming. But. And he was an ardent, outspoken anti-communist who had his own 
you know, propaganda outfit, which he financed through a money-losing grocery operation, HLH Foods. And he lived in a in a mansion that looked like a plantation. And he raised the flag every morning with his wife. And it was just like, And he had know. a naked cat. <laughs> Sorry. H.L. Hunt is basically a Bond villain. Or better, Dr. Evil. He wasn't just an oil tycoon. He was an American propagandist. He was really the anti-Zorin. Mr. Hunt, uh, it's often been said that that you have what is called a conspiratorial view of uh, history. In other words, uh, you see uh, reds under every uh, couch and cover and where they're not really there. Do you think you're over-alarmed a bit about the way things are going? However alarmed I am, I don't think I'm alarmed enough. Certainly in the United States, the Communist Party today is is a weak read indeed. uh, I don't think that J. Edgar Hoover would agree with your conclusion. Hunt financed his own radio show, Lifeline, who's very proto-Rush Limbaugh, where his announcers spouted anti-communism. If the vast majority of Americans suddenly were to cease believing in the individual dignity of man, we would all begin looking to the government for everything, and freedom would be lost to a paternalistic statism. Hunt's radio show attacked not only statism and communism, but also socialism, and, well, just plain taxation. Whether we like it or not, this is an extreme time in the history of our nation. In the communist schedule, the time is now. The target is you. H.L. Hunt was the anti-Zorin. He had that radio show, he wrote a column called Hunt for Truth. And he had a publishing outfit called Facts Forum. But Zorin did hunt one better. He peddled a conspiracy theory in which Hunt and the Texas oil bloc, led by Vice President Lyndon Johnson, remember, Johnson was also from Texas, had wanted Kennedy dead and had gone so far as to arrange for Kennedy to be killed because Kennedy was about to regulate the oil industry. Because of Zorin, Hunt was possibly better known in the USSR than in the United States. I hadn't known much about him. But Hunt still seemed weirdly familiar to me. From an old movie. Sure, this is because everything reminds me of an old movie. But apparently, everything reminded Zorin of an old movie, too. Soviet propaganda is laced through with plots straight out of Hollywood. And so are most modern conspiracies, including those about fake pandemics and stolen elections. Every conspiracy theory feels like a remake of an old movie, Because for something to work as a conspiracy, it has to work as a story. Specifically, H.L. Hunt reminded me of a character from one of my favorite Cold War thrillers, Billion Dollar Brain, from 1967. If you haven't seen it, one easy way to picture it is to know that it inspired the Austin Powers movies. It's that campy. My love for Billion Dollar Brain has nothing to do with Valentin Zorin and a whole lot to do with Michael Caine, who plays a sort of lazy, half-assed spy working his way into the center of a vast conspiracy run by a wealthy oil tycoon who lives in Texas. He's named General Midwinter. Boy, I tell you, and I know that the air in Texas is the only truly wholesome air in this world. General Midwinter is H.L. Hunt. This isn't just me and my overdeveloped sense of coincidence. The writer, in fact, 
based the character on Hunt. Hunt ran the facts for him. The fictional Midwinter runs a propaganda outfit called Facts for Freedom. Midwinter also is prone to see conspiracies everywhere. Maybe because he's up to some pretty conspiratorial hijinks himself. I'm leading a crusade, son. A world crusade for freedom. You don't understand the kind of love I have for this great country of ours. Love's not built that way, my way anymore. I love my country, and my dream is to make the thing I love strong. Do you understand me? Yes, sir. Strong! 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 It's all here in Billion Dollar Brain, produced by the same man who made the James Bond films, films that Zoran constantly ripped off for his own documentaries. I'm always struck by how in the late 60s and early 70s, and everything from spy thrillers to Soviet propaganda, everyone has an ulterior motive, and shady supervillains hold the fate of the world in their hands. Midwinter, Hunt. Julie and I were both amazed by this Cold War central casting. But there's something about Hunt that must have lent itself to, I guess, you know, the kind of the comic book character treatment, right? Because he was, I mean, it, just as you say, listing off, he lived in a house that was designed after Mount Vernon, so it was a southern plantation. He, mm-hmm. Like, the guy is 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 a parody of a certain sort of American magnet with the 10-gallon hat and the anti-communist yeah. brochures. yeah. And Soviet TV, I mean, they loved all these guys, Howard Hughes, mm-hmm. you know, all of these, any any eccentric capitalist who's over the top is, I mean, they're just built for the caricature that worked really well with Soviet propaganda. Midwinter was fun. He was a fantastic supervillain. When Billion Dollar Brain came out, though, critics accused it of being anti-American because by indicting Midwinter for being an oil tycoon like Hunt, it played right into Soviet propaganda, especially Zorin's. His specialty was state monopolies. So there was this kind of Leninist worldview that the United States was not controlled or did not work according to the structures that it claimed to work. It didn't it didn't matter about the separation of powers. It didn't matter about institutions like Congress and the White House and the courts, that the real um, power centers in America were state monopolies, were um, control of resources. So you had the steel monopoly groups, you had the oil monopoly groups, this kind of thing. It, under this sort of like um, rubric of how things work in the United States, um, democratic elections are a joke and we're just all chumps. <laughs> so. In American politics today, there are lots of conspiracy theorists on the left and especially on the right. All of them require a lot of cynicism about America. Exactly the kind of cynicism Soviet propagandists loved and Russian propagandists still love. Zorin, though, he didn't have to choose between left and right conspiracy theorists. He just advanced both of them. In the film The Puzzles of Dallas, Zorin talks a lot about how big everything is. Biggest airport in the world and best rodeo. And then he talks about how awful everything is. The biggest crimes, the highest rate of suicide. Meanwhile, there are puppet masters like H.L. Hunt lurking in their mansions. But all the films in Zorin's 1970s series work this way. You see incredible footage of these big cities 
while Zora narrates, explaining that capitalism brings all sorts of glitz and goods to the rich and unbearable misery to the poor. Julia, though, found it strangely moving watching her hometown, Dallas. But there's this other element to it, which is true, that he's a guest. And he's a stranger in a strange mm-hmm. land, and he's trying to explain it. Mm-hmm. And it's impenetrable in some ways, you know? And I, I just felt like, you know, that's actually true of a lot of us, that we often, in America especially, we move around a lot. We go to places where we've never been before. We think we know a thing. It's familiar. There's, like, McDonald's and, like— gas stations, and then we start talking to people we feel foreign. And that mm-hmm. this feeling of being an uncomfortable guest mm-hmm. is kind of everywhere now. Zorin's film about where I grew up in the 1970s is called Boston Contrasts. It opens with dazzling footage, bird's eye footage, a flyover tour of the city, the harbor, the financial district, the Charles River, Beacon Hill, Storrow Drive, all over music ripped off from Paul McCartney's band, Wings. But this, too, is just more James Bond, because that song was the theme song for Live and Let Die. I had a similar response to watching the Boston Contrast film, a lot Mm -hmm. of which was shot um, in 74, which were the Boston busing riots, right, when white families in Boston were, you know, blocking buses that were bringing black children to their neighborhoods. It's brutal, Mm -hmm. horrible moment in the history of Boston. But then there's also all this footage of the Tea Party shit because 1973 was the 200th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party and this goofy (laughs) ship was brought over across Uh the Atlantic and became a museum. Julie and I had the same unsettling reaction to watching Zorin visiting the America of our 1970s childhoods. It was weirdly comforting. Even when he was pointing out horrible, uncomfortable truths, like the deep and violent racism of Boston. I came to think that his weird appeal to us was because he was a foreign reporter, a stranger in a strange land. Instead of the way I sometimes felt in Trump's America, a stranger in my own country. When I deplaned Moscow, I was not aware that I was expected. There was a mini procession of two black automobiles awaiting my arrival. Two dark-haired men in black three-piece suits appeared from the cars and walked towards me. That's 12-year-old me, or a young friend of mine pretending to be me, reading an investigative report called Communism in Russia that I made up for my 7th grade social studies project in 1979. I, realizing there are Russian police, picked up my luggage and, with a deep sigh, started off to meet them. With insincere grins upon their slightly aged faces, they explained, in slightly broken English, that they would guide me during my stay. My report ends with me leaving Moscow, disappointed. I consider the remains of my trip trivial. It was the same over and over. I love it, everyone told me. It sounded like some of them were brainwashed, but some of them were sincere. A few years after I wrote that, the Soviet Union began to open up under the new Soviet premier, Mikhail Gorbachev. And after Gorbachev began to hold talks with the U.S. President Ronald Reagan, Americans and Soviets began to look at one another a little differently. 
1988, Valentin Zorin interviewed President Reagan. Здравствуйте, товарищи. Good evening, comrades. Washington, we are in the White House in Washington, D.C. This was just before Reagan's first visit to the USSR. I'm looking forward to seeing your country and, well, as much as, as possible with the meetings that will be going on. The next year, the Berlin Wall fell. And then, in 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed and the Cold War ended. I was in graduate school then, in the 1990s. You'd meet all these Americans who were fluent in Russian, training to become Russianists, Sovietologists, Kremlinologists, and then, suddenly, there were no jobs. The field of Sovietology vanished, almost overnight. Instead, you'd meet those guys, former Sovietologists, driving taxis. Americans stopped looking at Russians, but Russians kept on looking at Americans. I asked Serhii about Zorin's legacy down to today, and he talked about how all propaganda is a cocktail, a mix of truth and lies. Still, the, the basic recipe is, is the same, except that it's now turned, turned outward. So whatever creates confusion, whatever creates conflict is, is, is good enough. And again, you, 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 can't, you can't just sell a cocktail which uh, is, is completely untrue, which, which is completely, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. completely yeah. fake news. It's not just a cocktail lately, not just one drink. Instead, it's a whole cocktail party. In the United States, Americans told the story of the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 as a story about the failure of communism. In Moscow, the hammer and sickle is lowered for the last time, and an era comes to an end. But in certain quarters of Russia, in the mind, say, of someone like Vladimir Putin, the story of that collapse wasn't a story about the end of communism. It was a story about foreign meddling and Western interference and a failure of the Soviet leadership to defend against it. Russians told the story of a coup conducted by the United States and its allies by way of misinformation campaigns and propaganda. That's what brought down the USSR, they said. Zorin admired Putin, and the feeling was mutual. In 2001, Zorn sent Putin a copy of his latest book. President Putin dictated a thank you note to Professor Zorin, dated September 12, 2001, the day after the terrorist attacks on the U.S. And then Putin added a handwritten postscript. I have always followed your work with great interest and pleasure. Almost everything has been brilliant and shown remarkable talent. Wishing you all success. Americans, though, challenged Putin's authority and his legitimacy especially after parliamentary elections held in 2011, which involved blatant fraud, some of it caught on camera by Russians and shared on social media. The U.S. Secretary of State, Hillary Rodham Clinton, had words. We do have serious concerns about the conduct of the election. Anti-Putin protesters marched in Moscow, chanting, Putin is a thief! Putin, furious, blamed Clinton for inciting the protests. They'd been organized on Twitter and Facebook, and so to thwart them, Putin charged one of his cronies with taking control of social media, and that guy financed an outfit called the Internet Research Agency. Its purpose was to conduct misinformation campaigns within Russia to silence Putin's critics and stop the protests. Ludmila Savchuk first became a troll slayer back in 2014. That's from a story about a Russian, Ludmila Savchuk, who infiltrated the Internet Research Agency. 
We think of that place now as a troll factory, but really, it was an office building in St. Petersburg. It employed hundreds of Russians. Their job was to create fake social media accounts and post fake stuff. Later, Savchuk spoke to Charles Maines for PRI's The World. I wanted to get in there to see how it works, of course. But the most important thing was to see if there was some way to stop it. Savchuk's reporting showed that people who worked at this internet research agency were attacking Putin's critics in Russia. Soon after, the IRA would expand its efforts by attacking the United States, amplifying American political divisions and discontent by posing as fake Americans. OMG, this new anti-Hillary ad is brilliant. It's fantastic. Spread it far and wide. White boyfriend shows true colors on his black girlfriend over Trump. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. When Valentin Zorin went to interview the imperial wizard of the KKK in 1971, he didn't invent the Klan. But at the Internet Research Agency, they created fake Facebook pages, right and left, like Back the Badge or Black Matters, Blacktivist, Heart of Texas, United Muslims of America, Being Patriotic, Secured Borders, and LGBT United. Their Facebook posts were shared millions of times. They also bought more than 3,000 ads on Facebook. Around the time of the 2016 election, more than half the ads purchased by the Internet Research Agency had to do with race. A quarter were about crime and policing. These ads weren't advancing an agenda. They took all sides. They were just trying to get people riled up. But Donald Trump, when he took office in 2017, defended Putin. Uh, I say it's better to get along with Russia than not. Will I get along with him? I have no idea. He's a killer, though. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. You got a lot of killers. Why, you think our country's so innocent? Critics said Trump was Putin's puppet. But maybe it's more accurate to say... Trump was Zorin's vindication, a deeply, profoundly cynical blend of money, sex, and viciousness now at the center of American political life. Zorin died in 2016 at the age of 91, just a few months before Trump was elected. Still, Trump would have made the perfect subject for a Zorin documentary, a kind of capitalist supervillain, the sort of person who, for his own purposes, would incite a mob to attack peaceful protesters. I love the old days. You know what they used to do to guys like that when they were in a place like this? They'd be carried out on a stretcher, folks. In the 1970s, Zorin needed Soviet television to make and distribute his propaganda. But in 2016, it was American companies that provided the distribution network for all kinds of propaganda. They made an awful lot of money off of it, too. Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat... After Trump's election, a special counsel investigated allegations that Russia had meddled in the election. The Senate held hearings in 2018. Maine Senator Susan Collins, a Republican, questioned Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, about the nearly 4,000 Twitter accounts created by the Internet Research Agency, accounts that by Twitter's own estimate reached about a million and a half people. My question to you is once you have taken down accounts that are linked to Russia, what do you do to notify the followers that they have been following or engaged in accounts that are not what they appear to be? We we simply haven't done enough. 
I listened to that exchange and I had to wonder, how would Congress have reacted in the 1970s if American television networks were broadcasting Zorin's documentaries 24 hours a day? I think they would have stopped them. But today, the trolls are still trolling, and no one's managed to stop them. Very few Americans remember Valentin Zorin. The closest thing to Zorin that most Americans know? That's Borat. That's Sasha Baron Cohen, playing a reporter from the former Soviet Republic of Kazakhstan, allegedly making a Zorin-style documentary film about the United States. Although Kazakhstan a glorious country, it have a problem too. This why Ministry of Information have decided to send me to USA, greatest country in the world, to learn a lesson for Kazakhstan. Borat, provincial, ignorant, fascinated by the United States, and through sheer idiocy and clumsiness, able to cast light into its darkest corners. Borat is part of the weird afterlife of Zorin, the long afterlife of Soviet and Trumpian propaganda about the United States, a strange cocktail of truth-telling and bullshitting. After the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union, Zorin's Americanism was replaced with the Americanism of places like the Internet Research Agency. Study Americans just enough to know how to create fake accounts. It doesn't matter if you successfully interfere in an election— You just need to make Americans worried that you might be interfering in an election. Between the first Borat film and a sequel, released just before the 2020 election, Borat recapitulates that history, the history I've been trying to reconstruct this episode. In the first film, Borat is a cartoon Zorin, but in the 2020 sequel, Borat ends up running a troll factory. Now we are part of the global community influencing elections around the world. The Cold War was a battle of ideas, of propaganda, and of espionage. Spy versus spy. Trolls, Russian or American, are the last Cold Warriors left standing. A ragged and almost accidental army of pawns and fools and puppets. Endlessly commenting, tweeting, retweeting, making so much noise that hardly anyone could even tell anymore what it is they're actually arguing about. They're fighting bewildered, a war that should be over, on a barren battlefield, trying to convince you to trust no one and believe nothing. This season on The Last Archive, it sometimes feels as though I'm a genealogist, piecing together a family history, the ancestry of misinformation. Somehow, we're all the children of Zorin now. The Lost Archive is written and hosted by me, Jill Lepore. It's produced by Sophie Crane McKibben and Ben Nadif Haffrey. Our editors for this episode were Julia Barton and Karen Shakurji. Martine Gonzalez is our engineer. Fact checking by Amy Gaines. Original music by Matthias Bossi and John Evans of Stellwagen Symphonet. Our research assistants are Kamani Panthier and Lily Richmond. Our foolproof players are Yoshia Mao, Raymond Blankenhorn, Matthias Bossi, Dan Epstein, Ethan Hirschenfeld, Becca A. Lewis, Andrew Perella, Robert Ricotta, and Nick Saxton. The Lost Archive is a production of Pushkin Industries. At Pushkin, thanks to Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain, John Schnars, Carly Migliori, Christina Sullivan, Eric Sandler, Emily Rostek, Maggie Taylor, Maya Koenig, and Daniela Lacan. 
Many of our sound effects are from Harry Jeanette Jr. and the Star Jeanette Foundation. Special thanks to Paula Bossi, Dina Feinberg, Alexander Justanus, and Charles Maines, and particular thanks to B. Corsentino for playing a 12-year-old me. If you like the show, please remember to rate, share, and review. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jill Lepore.